If you have a Bible with you, please open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Luke 15, or you can follow along the bulletin. The same text is printed there. This is going to be the second half of the uh, prodigal son story. Jesus' famous story about the two sons that were alienated from their father and lost um, as examples of our alienation from God. And this is kind of the pointy end of the stick uh, part of the prodigal son, though. It's the older brother, the smug, self-righteous, judgmental brother who stayed home and resented that his younger brother was welcomed back so nicely by the father. Uh, His struggle seems totally reasonable to me. Um, I think I understand him, if nothing else, through driving. Um, I have two kind of uh, competing monologues that go on in my head when I'm driving. Uh, One of them is, uh, is to be very judgmental of you and the way you're driving. And it's a problem, really. You know, you're doing it wrong. I noticed this. And people who ride in the car with me uh, receive the benefit of my commentary on this, right? I'll tell them uh, in case you weren't noticing. Then there's also a silent commentary that goes on that I don't say as much. And that is I'm constantly rehearsing my speech for the policeman when I get pulled over. And it's, a, uh, it's very defensive and self-righteous. Uh, lots of explanation for why I was doing what I was doing, or exculpation of saying, you know, why me instead of all these other people, or, you know, don't you have something better to do? But even if I'm not speeding, doing anything wrong, I still run the monologue of self-justification and what I'm going to say to the policeman. And uh, I don't say that part out loud. I come by this honestly. I have uh, an uncle who had a traffic ticket that he took all the way to a jury trial. (laughs) <laughs> and he won. <laughs> it's a family hero. Yeah. But, yeah, we, we take our sense of self-righteousness and vindication with things pretty seriously. And those soundtracks, judgment and self-justification, I mean, those are the constant uh, monologue of the older brother in this story. Um, G.K. Chesterton, I think, said, um, two kinds of people in the world. There are sinners who think they're righteous and there are righteous people who think they are sinners you may need to think about that for a minute but that is the logic of Jesus's parable in uh, the Good Samaritan is that uh, people who are righteous and rightly connected to God are aware of their own brokenness morally Uh, there are people who know that they are lost and for the younger brother in story like this it's pretty easy for him to understand that he's lost. But for the older brother, the compliant child, the, the good child, it's very hard to come to terms with the idea that you're lost and have a need for help like Jesus gives. And so that's what we're going to think about today. And uh, it's, I feel like it's firsthand for me. You send a thief to catch a thief, right? I've got a lot of the older brother in me. The... The difference between me and a really rigorous Pharisee is mostly just rigor, you know. So, it's I'm just I just don't have the attention span and self-discipline to be as good an older brother as I would like to be. But I've got the heart of the older brother, and so um, let me pray for me and for us, and then we'll read the scripture together. Father, please come like you did at Pentecost, the first Pentecost Sunday, and uh, send your Spirit to us 
so that we could know you. We pray you would open our hearts and minds to you, that you would give us uh, insight into our own hearts that we don't naturally have, uh, so that we might find hope in believing in your son, Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, read with me. We're going to pick up at verse 20 of Luke 15. Speaking of the younger brother coming to his senses and returning home, it says, He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came, drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes you killed the fattened calf for him and he said to him son you are always with me and all that is mine is yours it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive he was lost and is found and this is the gospel of Jesus Christ Praise be to you, O Christ. I'm not making any promises to stop doing it anytime soon, but I'm going to use another Flannery O'Connor story for you. Um, I'm going to keep doing it to your reader. So, this is from Revelation, one of my uh, favorite of her stories. It uh, centers around a woman named Mrs. Turpin, which is either supposed to be a reference to turpentine or turnips, but either way you kind of get the point. She's an objectionable person, She's a, uh, who's apparently meant to represent me in the story, but she's a, a country woman who is, uh, you know, self-righteous, sort of bombastic, a big woman, um, but very convinced of her own goodness. Um, she's a person who lives with a, a mental ranking ladder in her mind all the time. She's always evaluating people by, you know, whether they are on her level or some lower or higher level. Uh, she's got a taxonomy in her head for people all the time about who rates where. And she's in a waiting room at a doctor's office, and she's kind of going around the room evaluating everybody. And she's got, you know, there's the white trash uh, woman with the child who needs his nose white, but she won't do it. And then uh, here's other uh, poor, dirty people. Here's someone who she thinks is kind of like on her level, a respectable person. And she starts a conversation with a respectable person, and they kind of talk about how they see the world and you know, in a pompous way, how thankful they are for all that they have and all that they are and these sorts of things. And uh, so you get a picture of her pretty quickly as an older brother. She's judgmental. She's always evaluating people. She's a good person, 
but she's super convinced that she's a good person. Well, there's another character in the room named Mary Grace. And Mary Grace is oddly named as well because she's just a living scowl. Uh, Mrs. Turpin looks at her and notices that she um, uh, has blue acne on her face and wears Girl Scout shoes. And her mother lets it be known that she goes to Wellesley College, which is kind of a pope from a Southern author, I think. And, and that she's got her head buried in a book called Human Development. And she is listening to the banter between these self-righteous women and getting madder and madder and darker and darker as the conversation goes on. And finally, sort of in one last spasm, Mrs. Turpin says kind of to the room and whoever wants to hear it, one thing it is, I am, is grateful. You know, think of who I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides. I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus. And about that time, Mary Grace let the book fly right at Mrs. Turpin's head, hit her in the forehead and knocked her out on the floor. (laughs) Follows the book across the room, grabs Mrs. Turpin by the neck, digs her fingernails in and says, why don't you go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog? (laughs) And uh, so... This is a pretty striking uh, development in the story, and Mrs. Turpin's trying to make sense of it, and she's, she's, she's bewildered and hurt and offended and confused and says, well, like, why me? I mean, why would you attack me and accuse me of this? I mean, why not the white trash woman and her child? I mean, but why me? I'm a respectable, hardworking, church-going woman. Why would you attack me? So she goes home and keeps brooding on it, as I guess anybody would, and uh, gets madder and madder because she starts to think that this statement from Mary Grace is a prophetic voice from God. That this is His judgment on her life. Go back to hell, you warthog, where you came from. And it makes her madder and madder. And so finally she goes out to the pig parlor on their property. That's just a pigsty that's uh, concrete. The pig parlor. She goes out there ready to do battle with God and to pray honestly probably for the first time in her life. And she goes out and she says this to God, How do you send me a message like that for? How am I a hog and me both? She says, How am I saved and from hell too? Why me? I mean, it's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to. And break my back every day working and do for the church. Well, if you like trash better, go get yourself some trash then. Go on, call me a hog again. Who do you think you are? Well, it'd probably do us all good to pray that honestly at times, but who, who do you think you are is the prayer. And I'm not sure what the answer she's expecting is, but I know who she thinks God is. She thinks God is her employer and that she's an employee. And she's an excellent employee who has not been treated fairly by God. Deserving better than she's gotten from Him. Scandalized with all of her dutiful employee compliance that she's not being treated better than she is by God. And it's the very picture of the heart of the older brother in our story, in the parable. What does he say? What's, when he's got a chance to finally let his father know what he thinks, he says... I've served you my whole life and I've never disobeyed you. I've been 
the most excellent employee you've ever had. I've been an outstanding, a stellar employee, and it's totally inappropriate now for you to give this wastrel, scoundrel son of yours uh, this party and this welcome uh, when he's been the worst employee ever. He assumes God is his employer and he's an employee. And the father says, as long as you think that, you're as lost as your little brother. You may be more lost than your little brother. Because this relationship here is not an employee-employer relationship. This is a father-son relationship. And you're my son not because you've been a good employee. You're my son because you're my son. And I love you not because of anything you've done or earned. I love you because you're my son. And there's nothing you can do to make me love you more, no matter how good an employee you are. And there's nothing you can make me do to stop loving you because you're my son. Even if you've been the worst employee there is. And that's really the message of the, uh, of the parable of the prodigal son, is that God is, we're not employees, he's not an employer. All of our dealings with him come as a gift of his grace. Uh, they're given to us so that we are his children, not people who are trying to become uh, favored employees of his. It's hard, though. He's talking to the Pharisees. You know the Pharisees? They were the ones complaining, the religious leaders complaining that Jesus was hanging out with sinners and eating with them. That's why Jesus started telling this story. And he's trying to come stealthily under their radar a little bit to say, look, you've got to consider that despite you being the religious leaders and the most compliant children, the white sheep of every family, you're as lost as your younger brother. And until you see that you're as lost as your younger brother, you're never going to be able to connect to the joy of the Father. You're never going to be able to connect to the grace of God. You're never going to be able to actually please your Father uh, unless you come to Him as a son. And so that's the point that he's trying to make. But... It's hard not to be sympathetic to the uh, older brother, right? I mean, gosh, he's, he's compliant. He's a good kid. He's doing what he's supposed to do. You know, in the father's old age, who do you think is going to take care of the father? It's totally going to be the older brother, right? He's just, it's going to fall to him without a big conversation in the family. He's the, he's the dutiful, responsible one. He's definitely the trustee, you know, when the father dies. And... He's done this his whole life. He's been a good boy. He's done what he's supposed to do. Eagle Scout, right? And uh, for for his dad to treat the younger brother this way is not just unfair to him. It offends his sense of propriety. It's immoral for the father to do this. I mean, what does a good person do? Do you do you just encourage people who go off as wastrels and who uh, blow their parents' inheritance and embarrass their family and impoverish their family? You just pat them on the head and say it's okay? You just promote that kind of behavior? I mean, doesn't he need to learn his lesson? Doesn't he need a pound of flesh taken out? Doesn't he need to become like a warning to other people not to go off the deep end in debauchery? Doesn't he need to be told that he needs to discipline himself and buckle down and work a little bit harder and maybe practice a little more uh, sexual self-restraint and, you know, be a better citizen? Doesn't he need to hear that? And, and does, does my doing the right thing my whole life count for nothing? I mean, really? Why, have I, why do I bother slaving? Why do I bother studying when somebody else cheats and makes a good grade on the test? You know what? It's not fair. It's not right. Because the older brother thinks he's, he's doing what he's supposed to do, right? He's a good guy. He's doing it right. He looks around, he sees most people around him are not doing it as right as he is. And it bothers him. Have you seen over here there's a, a hair 
shop called uh, the Karma Salon. Not sure what I think about that. I think it means that if you go in there, you get the kind of haircut you deserve, right? <laughs> so think of the older brother thinks he'd come out of the Karma Salon with an excellent haircut, right? I'm thinking I'd rather just maybe pay the rack rate and not, not, not try to uh, go to the Karma Salon. But get what you deserve. And in every way he has of looking at life and measuring things, he should get the best because he's behaved the best. He's done what he's supposed to do. He's towed the line. Of course, his problem is that he's totally cut off from the heart of his father. He's ice cold with regard to his father. He's just negotiating as an employee. I'm trying to be good. I hope I'll get a raise at some point. You know, because I sure deserve it. Because I've worked hard. He's an excellent employee, but the father saved him. His, his, his rebuke to him was in one word when he just says, Son. <laughs> like, Son. <laughs> You're not an employee. You're not on probation with me. I'm not, I'm not looking at your timesheet to decide whether I love you and I'm going to bless you. You're a son. And I know you distance yourself from your brother when you call him your son has wasted the property. But when the father rebukes the older brother, he says, this your brother has come home. You're my son. He's my son. He's been a crummy employee. You're a great employee. That doesn't matter to me because you're my sons. And what's going to be hard for you to swallow is that you're both lost. You and your religious, compliant, dutiful life are as lost as your brother who's a scoundrel. And you both need to come home. So, but you know what, what it means to be lost when you're righteous? It's, it's, it's weird. I mean, Christianity is weird. Other religions, I don't think, talk this way. Where they say, you know, you need to... You need to deal with the problem of your good works. Right? You need to know that your dealings with God and His dealings with you are not based on your performance. They're based on His mercy through His Son, Jesus. Um, and actually, your good works done with self-righteous motives are your biggest spiritual problems. That's a weird thing to believe. It really is. But you see, the truth of it is that if, you're, if you have an employee relationship with God, you're always going to be joyless. You're going to be joyless because uh, you're always somewhat nervous. You know, you um, you're not in touch with the Father's delighted heart in you. He's not. You're not used to being loved when you don't deserve it. You're always trying to make sure you're going to be loved, and that's always an insecure place to be. Right? I'm always trying to get this person to love me. You're never confident in their love. You can never really enjoy their love because you're always nervous you're going to lose it. Right? So you're doing these constant, silent negotiations with God all the time about have I done enough, uh, what do I deserve from God, is He ripping me off, or uh, do I deserve more than this, or am I, do I have all these blessings because I've earned them, or, you know, you're just always doing this calculus in your head that robs you of joy. Uh, the joy that's supposed to say, just clock out and go into the party and enjoy the Father's delight in you. So joyless, also, uh, if you've got an employee attitude towards God, you tend to be very judgmental. Uh, it's just impossible. If you're on that kind of a treadmill, not to judge other people to see how they're doing. And always be ranking yourself and always be criticizing and finding fault and pointing out what other people are doing wrong. You know, when he talks about his younger brother, you know, he's got kind of a uh, embellished version of what his brother did. You know, he says, you went off the land and you uh, wasted, the, wasted your money with prostitutes. 
Yeah, but nobody said anything about prostitutes before now. It was just, it seems like that's, uh, that's the, the older brother's surmise. It almost feels like, well, if I had run off, that's probably what I would have done, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but it's, he's, he's just uh, rigorous in his judgment of his younger brother. In the church, we call this the gift of discernment, right? You know, I'm just a very discerning person. You know, God's given me the ability to see through. And so, you know, I think it's a service to the church for me to point these things out that everyone's doing wrong. And uh, so his gift of discernment is good and bad. He's pretty good discerning what his younger brother's doing wrong. He's really terrible at discerning himself because he's lost and he doesn't think he's lost. And he's really terrible at discerning God because God is not an employer and he thinks God is an employer. Right? So his judgmental heart and attitude, which eats him alive, you know, is his spiritual problem. When you're an employee, you can't help but run that soundtrack. You know, you're always judging people. And if, you're, if you've got a good mama, you know, if you're well-raised, you know not to say all these judgmental things out loud. But you're running in the, the, the soundtrack all the time in your head about what everybody's doing wrong, what they should be doing different. And I'll just tell you, at some point in your life, you're going to have a couple of TIAs, and it's going to break your filter, and you're going to start saying that stuff out loud. And everybody's going to know what you've been thinking all these years. Right? The, the soundtrack is going to become a monologue, and all of your judgmental thoughts uh, will start coming out. But are you an older brother? Most people... Don't easily think that they're older brothers. Christians think they're older brothers pretty regularly. I told you a couple of weeks ago, as I'm sure you remember vividly, uh, that uh, there are two medieval painters who painted self-portraits in pictures of the prodigal son. The Rembrandt's prodigal son in the brothel, he painted his own face on the prodigal in that picture, which was a pretty beautiful thing to do. Albert Durer did the same thing, Martin Luther's friend painted his own face on uh, the body of the prodigal. Uh, but a friend of mine pointed out to me this week that uh, nobody's ever painted his own face or her own face on the older brother in a picture of the prodigal son story. Because it's very hard to admit that that's who you are. You know? um, it's easier for the younger brother to come to terms with his lostness than it is for the older brother to come to terms with it. And so... We're given this diagnostic. Jesus gives it. He doesn't press home the point. He doesn't even tell you if the older brother went into the feast or not. He just drops the story there. Uh, because he knows anybody with the heart of an older brother like me, you know, it's, it's just going gonna, gonna to take time to deal with it, to come to terms with the idea that I'm really desperate for God's grace and I don't have any rightful claim on his love and blessing. I'm really as lost as my younger brother. But the hope is that the story is given to older brothers because the father goes out to the older brother just like he ran out to the younger brother. He's going to rescue the lost older brother just like he's rescuing the lost younger brother. And what he does, he comes out and he says, you are my son. You are my son. And for us trying to think about our relationship with God, we say, look, I'm, if there's a performance that's going to win favor with God for me, it's Jesus' performance, not mine. Right? If, there's, if there's a son who earned love and favor from the Father, it's Jesus who lived the life we should have lived but haven't and who died the death we deserve to die but don't have to because 
He has lived and died for us. And because of that, we've been made sons. Everything the Father could have held against us, every uh, condescending lecture that we deserve from Him coming back home, Jesus has taken for us. So the Father holds nothing against us now. Everything He could have held against you, He held against Jesus. And so now, we live as children of God, delighted, where we can actually think without sentimentality that God loves us and has affection for us the way that we love our children and grandchildren. And to think that way about God is not irreverent or sentimental. He welcomes us and delights over us in that same way. Uh, That's the Christian's inheritance. That's what's waiting inside the feast for older brothers who uh, can humble themselves and go in. And humble themselves and go in. William Cooper has a song about this. Some of you probably know this song, an old hymn. He says, To see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear His pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. But it changes a slave into a child. It changes duty into choice. So when Jesus comes to us, it's not like a normal religion where we're called to turn away from being bad and start being good. (laughs) Jesus calls us to turn away from being bad and turn to Him. And that small difference is huge because it's relational. Uh, He doesn't call us just to become more compliant children. He calls us to know Him and to have a relationship with God based on Him that isn't an employee relationship. So, I don't know. I don't know most of you well enough to know yet whether you identify more with the older brother or the younger brother. I'm betting a lot of you identify with both of them. Um, But when you hear someone accuse you to say, look, you... In all of your goodness, in all of your compliance, uh, in all of your white sheepness, you're lost. That's pretty hard news to accept. Most people have the, the Cuisinart blades of self-justification spinning so fast and hard that when any information like that comes in, it just gets shredded immediately, and we don't listen to it. Uh, some people go from being a religious person to a Christian when they hear this. Because they realize they've just been being good, but they don't have any connection to the heart of God and the joy that comes from that. And they've been trying to earn their way into His favor and realize it's a gift. Most people in church, though, you hear this, and you've heard it many times before, you find that it's just the slow process of God melting your glacial heart so that a little bit more you feel the joy and welcome. A little bit more you feel that He loves you even though you don't deserve it and haven't earned it. A little bit more you feel His invitation to you as a son to come in to His feast. So, the more we feel that, the more the ice starts to melt in our hearts, the better church we become. You know, especially when it comes to welcoming people who are not compliant children, people who uh, see themselves as being far from God. If we see ourselves as lost just like other people are lost, then we can become a far more welcoming congregation, be friends with people that way. Younger brothers feel our condescension pretty easily, you know. They feel our superiority, they hear our patronizing lectures, and they run away from us. It's a good argument to be made. The reason the younger brother left is because he couldn't stand to live with the older brother any longer. And you can see that. Somebody, I think it was David Brooks, I have my references today. David Brooks said that he was observing in the pride parades in New York City that uh, all of the most sort of in-your-face public displays of affection were reserved for times when the parade was passing a group of Bible thumpers. 
who were screaming about the immorality of the people in the parade. He said, apart from that, you didn't see that much, but whenever they got around the older brother Christians who were yelling at them, uh, that's when they acted out even more. So, something to learn in that. Grace changes you from talking about other people as your son and makes you start talking about them as my brother. There's a quote in the beginning of the bulletin from that book that Marilyn Robinson wrote about the prodigal son. and uh, In it, Jack, who is the prodigal, talking to Glory, who is the uh, older sister, um, in a sweet way, but he says to her, look, uh, you, you can't commiserate with me because you've never felt disreputable. And uh, people who've come into the feast know what it means to feel disreputable. Know what it means to feel lost and to be welcomed in by God. Mrs. Turpin, back at the pig parlor, um, yelling at God, praying honestly, but scarily. Comes dusk and she sees in the sunset this kind of purple streak across the sky that sort of transforms in her mind into a vision of a bridge of souls parading up over this bridge to heaven. People going into heaven on this purple bridge in her vision. And she sees on this bridge this whole taxonomy of people that she's always judging. She sees white trash people uh, clean for the first time in their lives. She sees black sharecroppers in white robes going up. She sees uh, parades of lunatics and freaks, she says, who are shouting and clapping and jumping around like frogs. (laughs) And uh, all going up on the bridge to heaven. And at the end of the procession, she says, she sees people who are just like her and Claude, her husband. People who always had a little bit of everything in the good sense to use it right. Um, So they were marching behind the others with great dignity and accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. She said, from the look of their shocked and altered faces, that even their virtues were being burned away. Even their virtues were being burned away. The older brother receiving grace she got in her revelation. Uh, We hope the older brother in the story comes into the feast and receives grace. But what the parable tells us is there's hope for older brothers. Hope for older brothers. You can clock out. You don't have to be an employee. You can come into the feast and feel the Father's joy. Now let's pray.